0: Section thirty one of Shakespeare identified. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand Shakespeare identified in Edward de Vere by J. Thomas Looney. Manhood of De Vere, Middle Period, Dramatic Foreground before entering upon a consideration of those dramatic enterprises which occupied an important part of the middle period of oxford's life which we place in a general way between 1576 and 1590 that is to say from the age of twenty-six to forty we shall dispose first of all of some personal matters which we are able to link on to the italian tour and which furnish corroborative evidence of his identity with shakespeare his stay in italy it has already been pointed out had so marked an influence over him as to affect his dress and manners and cause him to be lampooned as an italianated englishman the same writer holding him up to ridicule as a passing singular odd man the writer in question was none other than gabriel harvey the friend of edmund spencer who it has been affirmed almost succeeded in leading spencer's genius astray the dictionary of national biography gives us a very careful study of this curious and learned pedant and if we assume that the writer of shakespeare's plays was acquainted with him personally we can quite imagine from this account that the dramatist had him in mind in the writing of love's Labour's lost we have first of all baroon's speech on studious plotters act one scene one Which is simply portraiture of harvey even to the touch about these earthly godfathers of heaven's light for harvey was amongst other things a dabbler in astrology again in act 4 scene 3 we have a return to the same antagonism to studious plotting in the remark that universal plotting poisons up the nimble spirit in the arteries the whole spirit of the play is hostile to that merely bookish learnedness which is typified by scholars like gabriel harvey a living specimen of the scholarly pedant is presented in the character of holofernes and so realistic is the representation that it has been very naturally supposed that shakespeare had some contemporary in mind as the prototype of this eccentric pedant had the name and personality of gabriel harvey been previously associated in any way with shakespeare the problem of holofernes identification would not have remained unsolved for any length of time william shakespeare of stratford could hardly be expected to know much of gabriel harvey and therefore the prototype of holofernes has remained in doubt notwithstanding the fact that the resemblance was recognized by dean church life of spencer page eighteen there is of course no correspondence between holofernes in the play and the scriptural or rather apocryphal character of the same name who was decapitated by judith the name is therefore selected evidently for some other reason that reason becomes apparent the moment we put side by side with the name of holofernes that of Habanal, the name under which gabriel harvey appears in spencer's works For Habanol, the name used by Spencer is generally recognized as a rough anagram made from the name of Gabriel Harvey, whilst Holiferns is but another anagram composed of Spencer's Habanol, further strengthened by the characteristic letter R taken from both Gabriel and Harvey, and an F suggested of the V of Harvey the choice of an out-of-the-way name as an anagram instead of the invention of a new one is characteristic of the more subtle genius of shakespeare if then we are justified in connecting holifarnes with gabriel harvey it becomes impossible to avoid connecting the writer of the play with the earl of oxford for this reason oxford as harvey admitted had extended his customary munificence to this scholar when the latter was a poor student at the university and harvey on an important occasion had addressed complimentary verses to his benefactor then behind hoxford's back he had circulated privately satirical verses supposed to be ridiculing the man whom he had complimented publicly now turning to love's labors lost we find first of all A speech of of Holofernes, which bears some resemblance to the verses in which he had ridiculed Oxford. The speech introduced by the Latin phrase, Novi Hominem, Act 5, Scene 1. Then, in the by play of the second scene in the same act, and this is really the important part, Holofernes is assigned the role of Judas Maccabeus, and by a turn that is given to the dialogue, he is made to appear as Judas Iscariot, the kissing traitor. On being twitted on the point he shows resentment as though there was in it an allusion to himself the ingenious way in which a part played by an actor is turned into a personal attack upon himself is suggested of a covert personal application and therefore if it is not a direct confirmation of our theory it certainly constitutes another of the series of surprising coincidences which have appeared at every stage of our investigation under the old hypothesis of the authorship of Shakespeare's works, it has been frequently remarked that there is no character in the plays that can be identified with the author himself. If, however, we assume the De Vere authorship, we may at once identify the author with the character of Baroon Byron, in some editions, for it is he who mocks Holofernes as the kissing traitor. The play as a whole is a satire upon the various affectations of the times holofernes representing learned affectations don armado representing euphuism boyette representing the affectations of courtesy now the satirist in the play is Baroon, so that he personates the spirit of the play as a whole in other words he represents the writer and is indeed the very life and soul of the drama his biting mockery being something of a terror to his companions it is interesting to notice therefore that sir sidney lee connects rosaline who is loved by Baroon, with the dark lady referred to in the sonnets as being loved by shakespeare and mr frank harris makes the same connection thus identifying Baroon with the author of the play the latter writer though never swerving from the stratfordian view has done much to destroy the old notion that there is no character in the plays who can be identified with shakespeare he nevertheless asserts that shakespeare usually represents himself as a lord or a king if then we can accept Baroon as the dramatist's representation of himself under one aspect we see at once how much more accurately he represents the earl of oxford than he does the stratford man this madcap lord Baroon, a man replete with mocks full of comparisons and wounding flouts which he on all estates will execute is just what we have in a few of the glimpses we get of oxford's dealings with the people about the court all that merciless mockery which Baroon does not hesitate to turn upon himself mixed with depth of feeling and strong intelligence and his irrepressible fun tinged with musing sadness marks him both as a dramatic representation of the earl of oxford and in part at any rate a dramatic self-revelation of shakespeare we take this play to be largely representative of himself during the years in which whilst still to be found at court he was mainly occupied with literature and drama and was earning for himself the title of the best in comedy whether he succeeded at last as rosaline had urged baroon to weed this wormwood from his fruitful brain we will not venture to say certain it is that amongst the courtiers of the time he appears to have had a reputation for stinging jibes of which both sydney and raleigh seem to have come in for their share the quarrel with sydney in which he stung his adversary with the single word puppy is one of the few details recorded of his life about the court in the early years of this period the story of the quarrel is variously told differing in so much as this that one account speaks of sydney playing tennis when oxford intruded whilst another records that Oxford was playing when Sidney strolled in. In whichever way the story is told, it must needs be so as to reflect discredit upon Oxford and credit upon his antagonist. The chief contemporary authority for the details, however, appears to be Folk Greville, and when it is remembered that Greville was the lifelong friend of Sidney, and that when he died as Lord Brooke, he left instructions that this friendship should be recorded upon his tombstone, we can hardly regard him as an impartial authority one particular of this antagonism is however relevant to our present inquiry and must be narrated oxford had written some lines again the familiar six line stanza which are spoken of by two writers as specially melancholy they may be so but they are certainly not more melancholy than many passages in shakespeare's sonnets and are quite in harmony with that substratum of melancholy which has been traced in the shakespeare plays oxford stanza were i a king i might command content were i obscure unknown would be my cares and were i dead no thought should me torment nor words nor wrongs nor love nor hate nor fears a doubtful choice of three things one to crave a kingdom or a cottage or a grave melancholy or not the shakespeare student will have no difficulty in recognizing in this single stanza several marks of the master craftsman to this Sidney had replied with the following verse which the same two writers curiously enough refer to in identical terms as being a sensible reply wert thou a king yet not command content since empire none thy mind could yet suffice wert thou obscure still cares with thee torment but wert thou dead all care and sorrow dies an easy choice of three things one to crave no kingdom nor a cottage a grave these two stanzas form an important part of another argument to be treated later and therefore should be kept in mind it will be observed that the sensible reply contains no really inventive composition it is merely a schoolboy parody formed by twisting the words and phrases of the original stanza into an affront had it been an inventive composition it would have contained more matter than Sidney ever compressed into an equal space between two intimate friends it might have been tolerated as a harmless piece of banter between two antagonists it lacked even the justification of original wit and if as one writer suggests this matter led up to the tennis-court quarrel considering the whole of the circumstances including age and personal relationships oxford's retort of puppy was probably less outrageous and certainly more original than Sidney's verse had been Sidney's uncle Leicester upon whose influence at court the young man then twenty-four years old largely depended admits to having to bear a hand over him as a forward young man so that one less interested in him might be expected to express the same idea more emphatically the personal attack it must be observed had in this instance at any rate come first from sydney As in other cases, one gets the impression of Oxford not being a man given to initiating quarrels, but capable of being roused, and, when attacked, striking back with unmistakable vigor. The story of the tennis court quarrel is one of the few particulars about Oxford that have become current. Indeed, one very interesting history of English literature mentions the incident, and ignores the fact that the Earl was at all concerned with literature. Now, considering the prominence given to this story, it almost appears as if Shakespeare, in Hamlet, had intended to furnish a clue to his identity when he represents Polonius, dragging in a reference to young men falling out at tennis. If our identification of Oxford and Harvey with Baroon and Holofernes be accepted, an interesting point for future investigation will be the identification of other contemporaries with other characters in the play and in view of oxford's relationship with sydney we shall probably be justified in regarding boyette as a satirized representation of philip sydney not of course the philip Sidney that tradition has preserved but sydney as oxford saw him for compared with the genius of shakespeare no competent judge would hesitate to pronounce sydney a mediocrity if to this we add dean church's admission that sydney was not without his full share of that affectation which was then thought refinement it is not difficult to connect him with boyette the ladies man whom Baroun satirizes in act five scene two why this is he that kissed away his hand in courtesy this is the ape of form monsieur the nice that when he plays at tables chides the dice in honorable terms nay he can sing a mean most meanly and in ushering mend him who can the ladies call him sweet the stare as he treads on them kiss his feet this is the flower that smiles on every one to show his teeth as white as whale's bone and consciences that will not die in debt pay him the due of honey-tongued boyette the last two lines are somewhat puzzling apart from any special application applied to Sydney, however they become very pointed from the fact that he died so deeply in debt as to delay his public funeral his creditors being unwilling to accept the arrangements proposed to them the difficulties were only overcome by his father-in-law walsingham who had a special political interest in the public funeral advancing six thousand pounds when moreover we find Sidney presenting at a pastoral show at wilton a dialogue which is obvious plagiarism from spencer and devere we can understand Baroon saying of boyette in the lines immediately preceding those quoted this fellow pecks up wit as pigeons pease and utters it again when god doth please we give a sentence or two by way of illustration spencer shepherds calendar august will be thy bagpipes run far out of frame or lovest thou or be thy younglings miswent sydney dialogue between two shepherds will what is thy bagpipe broke or are thy lambs miswent de vere dialogue on desire what fruits have lovers for their pains their ladies if they true remain a good reward for true desire what was thy meat and daily food what hadst thou then to drink unfeigned lovers tears sydney shepherds dialogue what wages mayest thou have her heavenly looks which more and more do give me cause to crave what food is that she gives tears drink sorrow's meet. Sidney's whole poem is, in fact, little more than the dishing up of ideas and expressions from the two poems. If, in addition to this, the reader will turn back to the stanza of De Vere's beginning, I am not as I seem to be, noticing especially the reference in it to Hannibal, he will be able to detect more pigeons' peas in the following verse of Sidney's as for my mirth how could i be but glad whilst that methought i justly made my boast that only i the only mistress had but now if e'er my face with joy be clad think hannibal did laugh when carthage lost a certain degree of rivalry between artists in any department of art may be quite consistent with mutual respect but when one happens to be a forward young man guilty of petty pilfering from his rival one can understand the rival's point of view when he protests he is wit's peddler, and retails his wares at wakes and wassals, meetings, markets, fairs, and we that sell by gross, the Lord doth know, have not the grace to grace it with such show. Love's Labour's Lost, Act 5, Scene 2 The second line of this quotation is especially interesting in view of the occasion of Sidney's plagiarism mentioned above, The Wilton Show in support of our contention that plagiarism was characteristic of sydney we are able to offer the testimony of sir Sidney lee who remarks that petrarch ronsard and desportes inspired the majority of sydney's efforts and his addresses to abstractions like sleep the moon his muse grief or lust are almost verbatim translations from the french altogether it is evident that oxford was not without some justification for the use of the one word of his the comparison and wounding flout which has passed into literary history. It would almost appear as though love's labors lost contained direct allusion to the incident. For after a passage of arms between Baroon and Boyette, we have the following Margaret The last is Baroon, the merry madcap lord, not a word with him but a jest. Boyette, and every jest but a word. Princess it was well done of you to take him at his word. Before leaving this question of Boyette, we wish to offer an interesting observation upon the name itself. We have been unable to discover any other use of the word. If, however, we replace boy by its old equivalent knave, we get the name of one who was possibly the most pronounced foe of Edward De Vere, namely Sir Thomas Nivett the word is variously spelt like most names in those days but the entomological connection is obvious the feud between the two men and their retainers was of the same bitter and persistent character that we have represented in romeo and juliet between the montagues and capulets fighting took place between them in the open streets and lives were lost a duel was fought between oxford and sir thomas nevett and both were wounded oxford seriously it is possible therefore that quite in keeping with dramatic and poetic work of the type of love's labours lost boyette is a composite character formed from oxford's outstanding antagonists sir philip sidney and sir thomas nivet we have been trying to show that the plays of shakespeare contain possible pen portraits of men with whom the earl of oxford had dealings representing them not as tradition has preserved them but as they stood in relation to oxford himself it is no necessary part of our argument that these identifications should be fully accepted they bear rather on a branch of shakespearean study that must receive a special development once our main thesis is adopted meanwhile they assist in the work of giving to the plays those touches of personality which up to the present have been lacking and which in the mass must go far to support or break down any attempt at identifying the author it was during the period of oxford's life with which we are now dealing that he appears to have made for himself a reputation for eccentricity such eccentricity may have been partly natural his reputation in this particular would however most certainly receive considerable addition from the mode of life he adopted as the necessary means of fulfilling his vocation it is possible too that finding it served as a mask to have his way of living attributed to eccentricity and that it protected him against annoyance and interference he worked the matter systematically as hamlet did the eccentricity and levity which he evidently showed in certain court circles including doubtless the members of the burleigh faction was probably not only a disguise but also an expression of contempt for those toward whom he adopted the manner in those literary and dramatic relationships which mattered most to him his bearing was evidently of a different kind for there he is spoken of as a most noble and learned gentleman it is possible too that he may not have succeeded altogether in throwing dust in the eyes of burleigh for we find the latter admitting that his lordship hath more capacity than a stranger to him might think this dual attitude toward others is more than once illustrated in the works of shakespeare the most prominent illustration is of course that of hamlet we find something too of this double personality in the character of the madcap lord Baroon, and we have it exactly described in the case of brutus in lucrece he with the romans was esteemed so as silly jeering idiots are with kings for sportive words and uttering foolish things but now he throws that shallow habit by wherein deep policy did him disguise and armed his long-hid wits advisedly the same note appears again in his presentation of Prince Hal, or Henry V, whose vanities were but outside of the Roman brutus, covering discretion with a code of folly, Act Two, Scene Four, and who obscured his contemplation under the veil of wildness. In the case of Edgar and King Lear, we have the most pronounced development of the idea. Here we have the carrying out of a definite purpose by means of a simulation of complete madness, a purpose which— taught him to shift into a madman's rags to assume a semblance that very dogs disdained the conception was evidently quite a dominant one in the mind of the dramatist and that it was characteristic of himself whoever he may have been is made quite clear in the oft-quoted passage in the sonnets alas true i have gone here and there and made myself a motley to the view gored mine own thoughts sold cheap what is most dear there is nothing suggestive of enigma in these lines and therefore only their obvious meaning should be attached to them shakespeare as the great leader of true realism quite a different thing from the modern enormity which calls itself by that name is entitled to be read literally when he speaks directly and seriously of himself and therefore when he tells us in so many words that he had acted the mountebank in some form we may take it that he had actually done so to think of him as a man who brought to the practical affairs of life a wonderfully sane and sober judgment meaning thereby that he was a practical steady-handed man of business with a keen eye for the main chance is to place his personality in direct contradiction to all that the sonnets reveal of him let any one read these sonnets so full of personal pain then turn to love's labors lost much of which was evidently being penned at the very time when many of the sonnets were being written And he will feel that he is in the presence of an extraordinary personality capable of great extremes in thought and conduct the very antithesis of the model citizen that shakespeare is supposed to have been how suggestive is all this of de vere's lines one i most in mirth most pensive sad two thus contraries be used i find of wise to cloak the covert mind three so i the pleasant grape have pulled from the vine and yet i languish in great thirst while others drink the wine every word of these sentences reveals a man hiding the soreness of his own nature under a mask of levity whilst adding to the world's store of joy and merriment we feel justified in assuming therefore that the impression of himself which he set up in official circles was largely such as he intended to establish and that not the least part of the satisfaction he derived from his success in the matter was in the thought of fooling burleigh and others about the court it hardly needs pointed out how true all of this is of hamlet and how hamlet's attitude toward polonius rosencrantz gilderstern and the other courtiers might be taken as a developed and idealized representation of oxford's dealings with men like burleigh raleigh greville and hatton as a last remark upon this point we would draw attention to the fact that in his work the man shakespeare mr frank harris rejects entirely the idea that shakespeare cannot be identified with any of his characters and though approaching the question from a totally different standpoint and with other purposes selects amongst the most outstanding examples of self-representation several of the cases we have just cited from his work we quote the following passages in hamlet shakespeare has discovered too much of himself he makes brutus an idealized portrait of himself edgar is peculiarly shakespeare's mouthpiece it can hardly be denied that shakespeare identified himself as far as he could with henry v in every one of these cases as has already been remarked we have men hiding a superior nature under a veil of folly there is probably an element of confusion between the two men named brutus appearing with an interval of five hundred years in lucrece and julius caesar respectively but shakespeare's linking of prince hal with the brutus who pretended to be insane and swore to avenge the death of lucrece furnishes all the connection needed it is not our purpose to attempt to refute his reputed dissoluteness during those years of active association with dramatic companies it has already been remarked however that had his conduct been quite irreproachable in other respects the absenting of himself from his normal social and domestic circles which was partly a necessary condition of the enterprise he had in hand and the known character of those with whom he had to associate so frankly stated in the passage we have quoted from dean church would have afforded ample foundations on which antagonists might build for him such a reputation when we consider further the special character of Burley, so aptly described in the passage we have quoted from spencer's mother hubbard's tale we may rest assured that the most would be made of these things to oxford's discredit whatever his private character may have been a reputation for dissoluteness was almost inevitable under the circumstances it will be perfectly safe to say therefore that he was no worse but probably very much better than he has been portrayed On the other hand, as the Shakespeare sonnets themselves clearly admit departure from recognized canons of rectitude on the part of their writer, we are not concerned here to claim for De Vere a higher moral elevation than belongs to Shakespeare. At the same time, if we regard these sonnets as the product of Oxford's pen, we shall be able to clear his reputation of much of the slander that has hitherto been in undisputed possession. End of section 31